Welcome to the Etobicoke Historical Society's monthly oral history podcast. This podcast is one of a series of interviews of senior Etobicoke residents in the 1980s. The interview tapes were recently discovered in the local history room at Richview Public Library. We would like to thank the Toronto Public Library for giving them back to us so they could be made into these podcasts. These oral histories are a valuable and unique view into the history of Etobicoke in the early part of the 20th century, as seen through the personal experiences of local residents. We will be presenting a different interview each month. We hope you enjoy them. Monday, August 23rd, I'm speaking to Mr. Norman Irwin at his home at 38 Ridge Valley Crescent. Now, uh, Mr. Irwin, you were the architect for the uh, Home Smith uh, Company. Yes. And uh, how did you first get involved with uh, Mr. Home Smith? Well, it's a long story. Would you like to hear it? Go ahead. <laughs> when I graduated from Queen's University in Belfast, I was a very close associate of a fellow called Bill Shaw. And when I graduated, I went into the Board of Education as their school architect, or one of the one of the school architects. And he went to his father's place in Bangor, which is about 12 miles away from Belfast. His father was an architect. We hadn't seen each other for about nine months. And I was coming into the city hall one day, and I bumped into Bill Shaw, and we renewed old acquaintance and chatted for a while. And then as we were leaving, I said, well, so long, Bill, I'll be seeing you. And I don't use that expression in Belfast, but that's what I meant, I'll be seeing you. He said, you won't know. I said, why? He said, I'm leaving for Canada on Saturday. And I was quite surprised, since his father was an architect in practice, and I said to him, surely the way of ending the conversation. Well, Bill, if you hear anything good, let me know about it. Well, about nine months later, I got a cable. There was no transatlantic telephone system that was there. Come close this. There was no transatlantic telephone system in the app. I got a cable from him saying, uh, offering this job in Canada. And I wondered uh, what the heck it was all about, and of course, at that age, you tend to be a little bit adventurous, but Canada to me was like somebody asking me to go up the Amazon River, you know, very much an Indian and stuff like that. So in order to stall for time, I sent a cable back asking what it was all about. I got a cable, I returned saying, yeah, high-class residential work, excellent working conditions and salary, strongly advise your acceptance telling me the salary we wanted to pay, which was $35 a week, which was pretty good. Well, in 10 days, I was on a boat for Canada. Having cut all my ties, uh, I was the only one in our family of six that ever came out. In 10 days, I was on a boat. And uh, I went and told my boss about this idea, and he said, well, you may not like it, but if you don't like it, Cable me in a month and I'll keep a job for you. So that was pretty good. 
There I was. That's how I came to come to Canada. I was doing the Holmesmith Company. This fellow Shaw had come out here, got a job with Holmesmith. They were trying to develop an architect's department, and they were having difficulties because there weren't that many qualified architects around at that time. So he suggested bringing me out from Belfast, which and that's how I came to Canada. Now, what, what year was this? This was in 1929. Now, if I had been through that door five minutes later, I wouldn't have been in Canada. I would have never seen Shaw again. It's that tiny little thing that was they say, there's a destiny that shapes your end, rough hew them how you will. Now, that's, that's what happened in my case. I could so easily have missed him, and I've never, I've never, no thoughts of coming to Canada at all, not the slightest. Okay, you got, you got into Canada, and you got, you were hired by the Homesmith Company. Um, what were your first impressions of the outfit? Well, I liked it right from the very start. The uh, staff were very decent and very helpful to me, and uh, uh, Homesmith. He was a sort of a king of the castle, you know, a very a rather aloof man, and a very handsome, tall, dark man, and uh, a tremendous personality. As I often say, that if the king came into the, the room with Holmes Smith, the people who look at Holmes Smith first, he was just that type, and a very, very bright, intelligent man, too, and one for whom I had very great respect. As I said somewhere before, that uh, when bad times came in the 1930s, they laid off a lot of staff, and first of all, by deducting or reducing salaries, miners reduced from $35 to $30 a week. And uh, But when Holmesmith heard I was getting married that year, he put the five dollars back on again, in my case. That's the little human touch that I, I liked about the man. So my uh, the night that I left Belfast, I got engaged to the girl I'm now, I'm now married to, and she came out the following year, and uh, we've been living here ever since, and very happily, I may say. Now, um what sort of, uh, how, well, first of all, how big was the, was the architect's department? Well, there were 13 people. I was the 13th person in. And believe it or not, I was also the last person in. Because when the dirty 30s came along, the fellows were let out one at a time, one at a time. Because there was no building and everything else just fell away to a, a point that we wouldn't believe possible today. Like food lines and all that sort of stuff. People begging around their doors with old shabby clothes and no soles in their shoes. It was a, a horrendous experience. And I was the last man there, possibly because the, the other fellows were Tarantonians and Canadians who had families and could uh, look for help and, and possibly get other kinds of jobs. But I had no one here that I knew at all. And just having got married, the year that the whole thing started, I think that's one of the reasons. Not because of any of my genius, but because <laughs> I was probably one who had less chance of getting ahead elsewhere. 
would anyone bother you, so, sidetrack, uh, not necessarily in the firm, but would anyone bother you uh, because you were just come from Ireland? Uh, you were taking jobs from Canadians? Oh gosh, no. In those days, they were delighted to see anybody predicted from the old country because they were trying to build up a population here. They needed people in the worst way. And of course, when the, uh, those three or four poor years were over, just, the whole country just sprang up like a rose, you know. Oh no, they were desperately in need of Matter of fact, when I came out, the government gave me a passage out here for 10 pounds. Canadian government? Yes, Canadian government gave me a passage for 10 pounds, because he was a skilled tradesman, you might say, and just what the country needed. And of course, uh, strange enough at that time, no, it didn't seem strange to me, because I looked upon Canada as a, a branch of Great Britain, but all the builders and contractors and plumbers and carpets and all that were all Scottish or English or Irish or whatever. Uh, the tremendous influx of uh, European people hadn't uh, started until quite a time after that. So it was the, the Canadian government at that time looked to the old country for what they thought might be good immigrants, and they either helped them by having to pay their passage. Now, um, you came into the architecture department, and was, what were some of the uh, overlying concepts that Holmes Smith wanted uh, the architects to follow? Well, the basic one was old English design. And, uh, they had a, an older man there, Cresswell Book. Uh, no, uh, Wood. And he had, uh, Christopher Wood, and he had uh, specialized in this English type of architecture all his life in England, and he was brought out here, uh, also subsequently retired on pension and took care of him because he was a single man and quite old by my standards in those days. But he sort of set the pattern because he was tremendously skilled in Tudor architecture and so on. So Holmesmith, of course, valued this guiding light. Holmesmith had gone over to England a lot and seen this type of architecture, and uh, a lot of the financing for the Holmesmith company came from England, most of it did. So it, as you say, his little stamp always went on all the drawings and so on was that Anglia Farms, Anglia Brookfield, roughly translated as a little bit of England, far from England. He was the man who set the standard, who set the idea. And of course his idea was dramatically different from anything ever happened before because everything up to that time was right angle streets and squares divided into lots. I see these beautiful winding roads and uh, river paths and so on. But uh, the, the sheer size of the development, um, 
Was there anything in in the Toronto area which you could draw off of experience-wise for developing such a big tract of well, land? Well, they never had me. He was the original developing genius, and he did it in this, his own way. Now, so the, uh, yeah, the um, homes now are, are highly rated, and uh, you know, it's cost a fortune to buy, buy one of them these sure days. So, yes. um, what, what was in the mind? Who was Holmesmith trying to attract? With, with the homes? Well, the ones in the larger area, such the, along the Kingsway itself and backing up on the Humber River, he got a lot of his mining family. He's in the mining business a great deal, too. And uh, he got a lot of his mining friends, who were millionaires in those days, to buy, buy and build the homes, actually. We built them for them to their desires, their requirements. That's where he picked up the wealthy man, were many friends with his. Now, uh, would, was it strictly for, say, upper middle class and very rich in people with large incomes, or was there any attempt to, say, attract other people, lower incomes? In the preferred areas such as the very scenic ones along the river and so on, the, the lots were reasonably expensive and large enough to allow a nice house to be built and to attract that kind of people you had to have, shall we say, the best in environment, but as it tapered out towards Bloor Street and the main streets like that, those people are not interested in living on a, a street looking out on where it was a, a tram car or something like that, or a bus route. So you, you, you gradually, you, uh, <laughs> not the classic case, but that's what it means, came, rather tapered out until they came to smaller houses where uh, people of modest means could afford to live and would like to live, because it was still connected to this beautiful area of subdivision. Now, uh, what about uh, developers uh, that came into Clinical later, like to uh, take a big chunk of land flat and destroy everything in sight and then slap up as many houses as quickly as they could? What was Holmesmith's attitudes? Well, that, that didn't scale? happen in his time. See, Holmesmith died comparatively young, about 58, I think he was. And there were no large-scale developments, as far as I was concerned or aware, until quite a while after he died. Then you got fellows like Gordon Ship and so on. Now, what was the attitude of, of, uh, of Holmesmith towards things like chopping down trees and hills and leveling hills and that? He, he wouldn't go for that at all. His idea was keep the natural beauty as an environment in which you build a nice house. So he actually made the regulation you could not cut down a house, uh, a tree, even on the lot which you had bought from him, and which was your own lot, without written, written permission from his architecture department. 
So uh, someone, say for instance, someone came in and uh, um, bought a lot and they wanted to build a home um, and it didn't fit into the Tudor style. Mm -hmm. what, what would happen? It wouldn't be approved. <laughs> the, 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 every house, no matter who designed it, had to be approved by the architect's department, which was us, Bob Hanks and myself. And uh, he, we, we, knowing Holmes personal desire and what he had in his mind from our conversations with him, we tried our best to, to fulfill that, not by striking out good architecture, but by trying to, to let people see that their good architecture must fit into the pattern, the overall pattern, so we wouldn't get glaring discrepancies in, in good style or good taste. Now, what would happen if someone absolutely refused? To well, they wouldn't, to get, they wouldn't get a permit to build. So would Homestead buy the, buy the land back? Or if, uh, you know, they just get, wouldn't get anywhere to get offered to buy the land back? Uh, I've never heard of him doing that, but part of his control would be the same thing, because no matter who bought that land, it would still be under the restrictions imposed on the lot that they must comply with the architectural style. Yeah. Never any, I never remember one single occasion where there was objection to conformity. Now, you have a large, large area. It stretches from, from Bloor Street in the south up to where well, you're on part of the property here, are you mm -hmm. not? Yes. And go, went, so it went from, from Islington. Road. Yes. And from Islington on the, on the, on the west side. Yeah. To uh, the river on the east side, and then it went from Bloor Street down, what we call the Lower Kings, where you right down to the lakefront. Kings runs down there, and the other dicey situation because there was uh, a great big swamp practically all the way down there, and we had to put concrete piles down on practically every house there, and they don't know that, I'm sure. Of course, they're very sound and stable. So you had this. Incredibly huge piece of area. How many how many buildings would Holmesmith actually put up himself? That, do you have any idea? I wouldn't know numerically because, but I do know that at least 70 75 percent were Holmesmith designed. Houses. Now uh, you must have been pretty busy <laughs> throughout that time. We were. Yes. What was the, what was the pace like? Was it, the office. Well, it was never hectic. It was done conscientiously and we worked hard as everybody did in those days to produce good stuff. And if you worked a few extra hours at night, it didn't worry you very much. But the, the working conditions were excellent. The, his office was out just where the old mill is now, alongside it. And they had uh, tennis courts there, and a little nine-hole golf course, and <laughs> that was all part of our environment. As a matter of fact, uh, I've known occasions when it was too hot to work at home, so they closed the office at three o'clock. My wife and I we would be back there playing tennis at uh, half past three. <laughs> it was too hard. It was too hot to work. I don't 
kind of man he was. He was extremely considerate of his staff, and the conditions were really very nice. Because he put on the odd party of this beautiful big house up here for us, or take us out to his uh, summer residence up with Cal, and he had a couple of thousand acres up there. You know, and, uh, he was just a man who looked after his staff and was very considerate. Now, with all these, all these homes that, uh, that have to be designed, um, the natural thing to do today is to repeat the design on a continual basis, yeah. like maybe 10, 15 designs, and you stay with them. Um, did you ever, did, did the Homesmith Company ever repeat designs on a... No, they wouldn't go for that at all. Everyone had to be individually designed. It must have gone to... <laughs> must have a lot of head scratching. How can we make this one different? Well, uh, I, I'm amazed, silly thing to say, Thomas, but I know this area, area like from the power of my hand. I go down these streets and I see houses which are in the smaller areas there down towards from King George's side to Bloor, where I know myself the inside plan of that house with its three bedrooms, its living room, the kitchen and its bathroom, or as is the one next door to it, and yet the two houses looked completely different. But that's what we tried. There were uh, houses which were nice to live in and easily marketable and didn't take up too much land and people could afford them, but we wanted them to look different from the outside, which we did. And I, I, <laughs> I shouldn't say it, but I was, I'm amazed when look and see how did we dream up all those different designs? But that's what our business was in those days. Now, what about some of these designs? Uh, if you remember a lot of them, then uh, um, are there any designs which weren't used then, which have become very popular now, or or haven't been touched at all? Well, I, there's a uh, the general style. I've seen it copied everywhere over the. So in Ontario, people who like them, they'll probably say to the architect, can I have something like this? And you look at it and maybe take a photograph of it, and we'll see it reproduced somewhere else. But that's, I suppose, rather flattering than anything else. Did you say in any of your designs uh, there was something, um, uh, something that had never been done before, which was unique and very you know, before its time? No, uh, certainly not within the Holmesmith domain. We, we did, when Bob Hanks and I started up on our own business, uh, we did modernistic houses, but uh, which were a little bit ahead of their time, but there was nothing like that ever done in the Holmesmith complex. Now, when, when did you, uh, when were you with Homesmith until? Uh, from 29 to 38. That time, Homesmith closed down his architect's department because the building had tapered away off to nothing. So, <coughs> Bob Hanks and I, who were the last two in the office, started up our own firm, Hanks and Irwin. And went back, he allowed us to use uh, the old architect's office there. And uh, 
sort of a that first year, I think, he built a little office for us out on the Kingsway, where uh, All Saints Church now is. Our little wooden office was there for a couple of years, and that was built by Hall Smith for us, which you, you can't get any better than that. And we still operated as his architects for control of the design pattern. Now, um, what, um, you know, you'd have to talk to Holmes Smith on a, on a regular basis, I would guess, to keep in touch with his ideas. Mm -hmm. um, how, would a, how would a conversation over design develop? Was it very, very quick paced meeting, or would it be slower? No, it, it was, he didn't give you any feeling he wanted to get busy and get your ideas and get out in a hurry. He uh, a very genial sort of man that would uh, know you were embarrassed. You're talking to the boss, he'd help you along terrifically. He made it very easy for you. So it would be a very sort of, you would get a chance to sit down and discuss ideas. Oh, yes. Yes. That's, he did that all oh, periodically and uh, let us feel that we were important to the scheme. Now, um, I know you weren't, you weren't involved with the sales, but uh, what was the sort of, were there a lot of people who really wanted to move into the to a Holmesmith uh, design? Well, I think they, they wanted to move into the Holmesmith area because it was something that had never occurred before. They knew the environment was going to be protected and that the houses were going to be built in those vacant areas were going to be standard good houses that they would be glad to see with built there, you know. They weren't going to see a bunch of crap going in there, or low housing or, or apartments or anything like that. I think that they realized this was a safe place to build a house for the rest of the lives. And incidentally, the, the, archi the old architect who was there in the Holmesmith when I arrived and before the department was formed was called Poise Wood. The reason I am stumbling by the call of Poise was that to see one of his ancestors was uh, Admiral called Poise, and there's a town up in Northern Ontario called called Poise or Bay or something like that. So that was the man anyway. He was the the father the English idea. Sure. Now, uh, today, if someone wanted to build a, a different looking home in, in the Kingsway area, would they be allowed now? Or? Well, the, the restrictions have run out. The 30, 30 year restriction, they're all gone now. So that, uh, if anyone had the bad taste to want to destroy a, a beautiful looking street, of compatible houses with some of these. To me, I call it the cult of the ugly. That's what modernistic architecture is to me. They're unbelievably ugly in a lot of cases. No niceness with them at all. If they want to put that on the nice street that paints with crest, I think they'd be crying. But there's no law to prevent them. You, know, you mentioned earlier about this article that came out a few years ago about Smith and then your quick discussion with yes. that. What were some of the basic problems with that article? What was wrong? 
Do you mind if I glance through it here? No, not at all. Not at all. Go ahead. Let's see. I have it somewhere upstairs. Yeah, here it is. The heading was Tycoon Dreamer Dies Broke at 58. Well, that is an absolute lie. The Holmesmith Company kept on making money to the, to, to the day it was sold to a very large day. And uh, what I was saying here, the man was a genius who was way ahead of his time, says Norman Darrow. Aaron was one of 13 architects who helped Holmesmith design more than 2,000 houses on the valley in the 20s and 30s. At that time, houses were built one at a time, Aaron says. Holmesmith laid out a planned community that included the golf course and roads. Uh, just trying to find the piece that I objected to. Somebody else. In fact, he, he preferred the sport of tipping the elbow. Jim Gunn, a local historian, said, the local Smith's obituary said he died at the age of 58 of a heart attack. It might be the source of the liver. Eight weeks before he died, the doctor diagnosed him as having a fatal illness. Heart attacks can't be diagnosed on the advanced film, says. His family and some of his associates have hinted about the actual cause. Now, Bastardly lie, if I might say so. I never saw a Holmesmith drunk in my life. I saw him practically every day in my life. Even like when you went to his to a party at his house, mm -hmm. never, never any sign of, of drunkenness or drinking at all. I talked to lawyers who handled his business. By the time he died, he was heavily in debt. He had to let his servants go because he was so broke. That's absolute lies. Because uh, I knew him up to the day he died, and uh, his servants were still in the house and lived in that beautiful big house across the golf course there on the South Drive, as it was called there. So this is the sort of stinking <laughs> publicity that people give to seem to want to downgrade the great people of their age. I don't know why. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much. Well, do I, did I help you at all? Considerably. Thanks for listening to the Etobicoke Historical Society's Oral History Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and like. If you wish to learn more about the work of our society, be sure to visit www.etobicohistorical.com. See you next month.